You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Ingrid. Hi there, Bob. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. A bit hot, but otherwise fine. Well, you, and you're you? in Washington, D.C. If you had asked me before the summer started, should I spend the summer in Washington, <laughs> D.C., I would have said, having lived there myself, no. But, oh, I well know that. Yes, I've been here many a summer. Yeah. And never pleasant. Little on the humid side, and it seems like it's been a hot summer. It has here. Um, so let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ingrid Newkirk, a very important figure in the animal rights movement. Um, you founded the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, which has done a lot to put the whole issue of animal rights and animal welfare more broadly on the map, especially in the United States. I think um, in a way, the United States was a late adopter in this realm, right? I mean, it, it, this had always been a bigger issue in Britain, which where I gather you're from. Is that, are those two things right? You're from there and it, and it was a bigger issue there earlier? Bingo. Yes, it was a very big issue for some years before it came to the United States. But my theory was at least it used to be, that where the United States goes, so goes the world, from blue jeans to music to uh, rights. And so Mm -hmm. I thought it would be a very good idea to start PETA in the United States. And certainly it did have an impact. I mean, uh, I wouldn't say PETA is solely responsible for this, but it's certainly the case. If you compare the number of people who now would say they don't eat meat for moral reasons or or eat limited quantity you know uh, quantities of meat for moral reasons now to to 1980 uh the the movement has just mushroomed at least according to my casual observation i'm sure that's your sense as well well i look back 40 years which is when we started right and back then nobody knew the word vegan that was mm-hmm. an alien uh, word let alone concept Even being vegetarian was considered, oh, you must be religious, you must Mm -hmm. be a Quaker or something. So now you go to the supermarket and you spend 10 minutes staring at the shelf. You don't know whether to have the macadamia or the soy or the hemp or (laughs) whatever it is, milk. Um, So, yes, vegan is very much understood and a thing for the environment, for animals, for health, you name it. Mm -hmm. And it's not just food, of course. It's that people no longer want to take their kids to the circus and see the elephant stand on her head. And they don't want to buy animal-derived clothing because they don't want to be survivalists when they dress. So Mm -hmm. things have changed a lot. You're absolutely right. Although I'm sure you would say there's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. Just just a tad there. I mean, human rights, peace rights, animal rights, children's protection, the works. Well, I I meant specifically in the realm of of animals. In other words, there are a lot of people who still eat meat. Later in the conversation, I want to explain my diet to you, which uh, does involve certainly some things you wouldn't approve of uh, and and get your exact take on it, on how uh, conscientious I am or I'm not successfully being. I'm one of many people probably who... Haven't gone as far as you'd like, but have gone part way. So I want to get your take on that. Now, we're going to talk about um, your new book, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion, co-authored with Gene Stone. Um, 
And I guess one way to start talking about the book is to say that part of your mission has involved uh, getting people to take seriously just the fact uh, that it's like something to be an animal, right? I mean, the, the, that animals have subjective experience. We, we pretty much all of us presume they are sentient. They are capable of um, suffering uh, as well as pleasure, presumably. And, and most people would, would agree with that in the abstract, but, but you, you have wanted to get them to take that seriously as a moral matter and apply it to their everyday lives, right? Yeah, which is why I wrote the book with Jean in two parts. Because first, you have to care about animals. So the first part is who animals are, meaning that, yes, if you took Biology 101 or you've read anything in the science literature about animals, you know they do feel, they feel pain, grief, joy, love. They don't want to die, and they flee the knife. So the beginning of the book is impressive, I'd like to say jaw-dropping, things that you might not know about every kind of animal, from snails to dogs to elephants to birds. And the second part is having been informed of who they are and how amazingly talented and emotional and smart they are, then shouldn't that inform our habits? And Mm -hmm. the second part goes into how we can change our habits so we're not even inadvertently hurting them because we just haven't got a clue of the impact of our actions. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess it's easiest to make your case when the animals remind us of ourselves, right? I mean, it's like non-human primates, people have a pretty easy time usually relating to them. And in fact, one of your first big kind of publicity successes at PETA uh, was to expose this uh, research laboratory in Silver Spring. Uh, and all you had to do was look at a picture of what they were doing with these monkeys uh, and to to feel kind of um, empathy for them. But uh, I guess um, your, you know, your book is arguing that it shouldn't just be a question of how much they remind us of ourselves or even of how, quote, intelligent they are, right? I mean, that that's a common way for people to appraise the morality of treating or mistreating animals is to ask themselves, well, how smart are they? You're, you're opposed to that. Yeah. I mean, I don't really mind why anybody changes if they change. I mm-hmm. think it's fine as long as they take a step. And while we say we find it easier to understand primates I mean, monkeys are made terrible fun of, and yet there are fellow primates, and they're very, very smart. And even if they aren't, as you say, I mean, you don't hurt a baby, a human baby, just because they're not smart, or a person with a mental disability just because they're not smart. So it's not about smarts. You're right. And I know what happens at the National Institutes of Health, even to chimpanzees in the not-so-distant past. And they have what everybody knows, 98 point something percent of our DNA is abominable. I mean, kept caged for life in isolation, social beings sleeping on a cement bench 
you know, with nothing to see or do year after year, 30, 40 years, or kept in a chamber. So we might say that, but our, our behavior doesn't actually bear it out. We just think that we care. But if you think about a cow, I mean, you know that a cow feels pain. Burn a cow with a cigarette, and it won't be a surprise that they jump back any more than I do. But there's no question that our behaviors don't necessarily match our intellectual understanding of who animals are. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the, uh, I mean, on the, let's look a little bit at that, at at the question of using animals for, uh, experiments, because it does help illuminate the difference, I think, between an animal welfare perspective and an animal rights perspective. Um, is it your view that it, it doesn't matter how much good could come out of the suffering inflicted on those monkeys in Silver Spring, like if, like if in a thought experiment, there are, uh, you know, uh, what you would learn from making 10 monkeys suffer would uh, alleviate uh, comparable suffering in 10 million people. In your view, would that not matter? In other words, they're just, you just, monkeys should just, you just should not intentionally inflict suffering on monkeys because that is one position. You know, it's an old-fashioned question. I'm awfully sorry to say so. Oh, I feel very, very guilty. But That's all right. It's just that's what we've been taught to think. And, yes, I think they're off limits because in the old days, and, you know, again, the old days is relative, we've used GIs without telling them and given them hallucinogenics, and they've jumped out of windows not knowing what's happening. We've given them Agent Orange. I mean, we've treated orphans as if they were just simple research subjects because there was nobody to protect them. Human orphans, migrant women, the Tuskegee Mm -hmm. experiments on blacks. We have come along to say, hey, they were off limits to you just because you could doesn't mean might makes right. But there's a far bigger thing going on here is we mustn't buy this business, even if you don't care at all about animals, couldn't care what happens to them. You're short-selling human beings because 95%, that's just a a little bit, 95% of drugs tested safe on animals don't work in human beings, which is why you see all those ads on television where, you know, hire this attorney if you have side effects and all this list of side effects. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing, Bob, to monkeys, even monkeys, at this very moment, just eight miles behind me or less, is putting them in cages, interfering with their brains, frightening them with spiders and snakes, rubber spiders and rubber snakes, to see how they react. And they've been doing that for 40 years and just writing the results down or typing them into the computer these days. And nobody taps them on the shoulder and says, hang on, I thought it was just a few animals treated well and used for some life-saving thing. No, it isn't. It's that experiment I just mentioned down the street here, $13 million in taxpayers in the last 10 years alone. Okay. But just to be clear, when you said uh, that we don't do these things to humans that were done to these various humans, giving them LSD without your permission, because that's off limits, 
you're right. I think most people would say that. And the reason they would say that is because we think of humans as having rights. Now, a lot of people don't mm-hmm. think of animals as having rights. And, I, and my question for you is, are you saying animals are just off limits in the same way? That it doesn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what justification and future alleviation of suffering you claim. They're just off limits. In other words, they have rights like humans. Yeah, because okay. it's supremacism to think otherwise. And we had all these other kinds of supremacist ideas, which allowed us to say orphans don't have rights. Why should they? Or, you know, mentally disturbed people or prisoners don't have rights. Why should they? Or even black men, for God's sake, don't have rights. Why should they? All that was supremacist. We're all living beings and we all have interests and we all do not wish to be tortured, oppressed, bullied and harmed. We're not any of us tools for research or curiosity. We are off limits and so are they. Yeah. And it's certainly true that a lot of people, if you ask them, why do human beings have rights? If they've never really thought about it, probably the easiest way to convince them is to get them to feel some empathy for the person whose rights are in question and, and, and acknowledge that those people have feelings and they suffer. And, and that's pretty much it. And you can, in principle, do that pretty readily uh, with, with, uh, as I said, with non-human primates, you can, you can convince people that they suffer and, and probably some of the things they feel, uh, feel pretty much like the things you feel. Now, now I'm, I'm sure, I know you're against the kind of the great chain of being concept. You get into this in the book, <laughs> yes. right? Where, where, where if I say, if I say, uh, okay, fine, primates are one thing, but what if we go down the scale all the way to bacteria? You don't like that way of putting it because you don't want to think of there mm-hmm. being some kind of ladder of, of worth, right? Of moral worth. Yeah. At, the, at the same time, even you presumably would think it's much less tragic, uh, when a mosquito gets squashed than when a dog gets hit by a car or something. You know, it's funny because in a talk I give, I talk about the great chain of being. I'm glad you mentioned it. And I have the original great chain of being. And as you know, there was God at the top, then the angels, then the kings and queens, and then the bishops, and then, and so on. And below thieves and robbers were <laughs> actors. <laughs> well, actually, just, I, en- yeah. I endorse that particular part of it, by the way, but go, go You're ahead. Right. But then it went down, and I think rocks were at the end. So, yeah, I think the, the great hierarchy chart, which was written from a religious perspective, is balderdash. And what is important is, does any living being have feelings? Do they have interests? You know, it's the whole singer thing is... Um, what rationale, what reasoning are, are you operating under that you decide to discriminate against another mm-hmm. living being? And if you can't make the case, then leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And when you say the Singer thing, you're referring to Peter Singer and, and his book, Animal Liberation, which oh, yeah. I, think, I think was an inspiration for you. Uh, was That was written in what, the 70s or something? Uh, I think it was written in the late 70s. It was yeah. a real eye-opener for me. Um, I was about to get an award um, as a Washingtonian of the year, and I had to go to a banquet to accept it. And I just finished this book, and it changed everything I thought, because until that point, I thought you should treat animals kindly, but within the context of using them, like, um, you know, they were, they were ours. They were right. 
uh, hamburgers on the hoof or they were handbags that hadn't been skinned yet, but you would never be knowingly cruel to them. But I didn't connect the dots. Yeah. Read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation and thought, oh, Lord, I actually think they are not ours to use. There are other living beings like us. Went to this dinner and instead of politely saying, thank you so much for this lovely award, I said, everyone, and I told them the story of Peter's philosophy, and they must have thought, oh. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the difference between animal welfare and animal rights as a perspective, right? I I mean, although animal welfare should be incorporated into animal rights, of course, because, yeah. It's implied by it, right? I mean, concern with their welfare is implied by an animal rights perspective, but, but you could have an animal welfare perspective and still think, well, we do get to use them. We should just be as nice about it as possible. Yeah. You shouldn't tie a fire, tie a firecracker to a cat's tail or beat a horse or starve a dog. But often that welfare perspective stops when it's convenient for us to go to the grocery store and pick up a steak or Mm -hmm. an egg or whatever it is, or buy a fur coat or a pair of leather shoes we no longer think of the welfare perspective. And yet, in the industrialized production of those goods, there is no animal welfare at all, including in wool production, which is a huge surprise, in fishing, commercial fishing, and all these things. The animals are commodities, and there is no consideration for welfare at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's... um. Let's talk a little bit about the book. And, and uh, I mean, I want to sustain this kind of theme of, of like how to get people to care about different kinds of animals, including some that aren't very much like us. But that's very much what the first half of the book is about, right? I, I mean, a lot of it is about animals that might not seem obviously smart to us, but there's something impressive about them. I mean, it's it's almost like you want to us at uh, you want us to at least respect animals, ev- even if the empathy is not natural at first, you want to at least build up a certain kind of respect. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's very fair to say. I mean, I do tell uh, stories about elephants and dogs and um, all manner of animals and also exotics like reindeer. People don't know that their eyes are blue in winter and they're yellow in summer and they have infrared sight and all these things. But I do also talk about it's not about familiarity with an animal or being enamored of an animal like a polar bear. And it's not about size. I actually talk about how a snail knows that a storm is coming. This tiny being knows a storm is coming and uses mucus to create a sort of double glazing, two doors at the entrance to the shell. And I can't say his or her, it's a hermaphrodite at the entrance to the shell, and then shelters back there until the storm has passed. Now, you know, that's pretty impressive. So I talk about dolphin having dolphins giving their children a whistle name that they have for life, but I also talk about how cows will have a eureka moment and kick up their heels if they do something like operate a water pump with their horns or figure out how to open a gate latch with their tongues. So I do try so, so, to bring in the whole gamut of animal life. So do cows really kick up their heels when they learn something important? They do indeed. They're not very vocal. And in fact, they use very subtle facial expressions that we have a hard time picking up on. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, the, uh, it, you know, wh- one thing is that I was reminded in, in reading your book is it's amazing in some cases how little we still know about animals, right? I mean, is it, how much do we know about how different species, there are so many species of migratory birds, how much do we know about how they migrate? Have we really gotten to the bottom of that? Yeah, we, we're learning more all the time. And I suppose if you're tuned into it, if that's an interest of yours, you pick up a news item with something different almost every day. But we do now know, and fairly recently we discovered that pigeons actually can read low-frequency radio waves. That's another way we've just learned that they navigate. We know that turtles, birds navigate by the position of the celestial bodies, the stars and what have you. and So many of the animals know how to read the Earth's magnetic field, which we don't unless we have a compass or we have instrumentation. So we're learning about migration, and it's so impressive. I mean, some tiny little birds, like the godwit, can fly 7,000 miles without stopping. And if they know that there's suddenly a shift in the weather... They sense it way in advance, no instruments, nobody to tell them, no radio, and they'll turn around and shelter in a place until it passes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're learning all the time. And you have a story about a cat that what walked across Florida or something to find its, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it was, it, I guess it, its owners had, had left, uh, were on vacation or something, and, 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 and it got lost and it walked, I don't know, hundreds of miles and found it. There, there are many of those. In fact, um, I think this week uh, on the news, there was a, a dog, Cleo, in uh, Kansas who went missing. And they were frantic, looking everywhere, looking everywhere. I may have the two states reversed. Ended up 60 miles away in Missouri and had gone back to the original home where she used to live but hadn't been there in two years and had never walked the Mm -hmm. 60 miles between the two places. So there are things we don't know about the manner in which they navigate, uh, terrestrial animals navigate. One of the things that's suspicious, uh, that's suspected now, is that animals, especially dogs, are able to scent uh, subtle changes in the air and they can tell the difference. They're honing towards a combination of particles in the air that they know is where they live. But that's over thousands of miles sometimes. Uh, they've mm-hmm. traversed the entire country to get home. Uh, this Cleo apparently passed um, a, a raging river and would have had to go over a heavy, uh, heavily trafficked bridge. So mm-hmm. who knows? By the way, speaking of pets, do you... Uh not approve of my having called uh, use the word owner to refer to the pets. I, I know I, I once read that uh, Peter didn't like the word pets uh, and, and that the preferred word was companion animals or something. What What is the current thinking on how I should and shouldn't talk about this? Well, I think every movement is sensitive about language because language often steers, of course, how we think about others And as a feminist from way back, I know that language in the women's movement was pretty critical. And people would say, oh, come on. You know, it's only meant as a term of endearment. And we said, no, you know, cut it out, leave it off. And we're seeing that in other movements today. We prefer the word guardian 
Although when I'm looking at a cruelty case and someone has beat the living daylights out of a dog, I'm not going to call that a guardian. That's an owner. That relationship was not guardianship. Mm. Yes, guardian is good and companion animal or family member rather than pet. Pet denotes some sort of uh, accessory to your life, whereas they should be somebody you're taking in and who you love and they look after you and you look after them. And is your view also that um, you kind of shouldn't go buy dogs that have been bred, that it's fine to get to go to a shelter and get animals uh, that have no home because they're already around. But are you against the whole industry of producing animals? And and let's leave aside puppy mills per se, you know, the kind of famously inhumane way of mass producing these pets for pet stores. Um, Are you, are you kind of against the, the idea of breeding animals for what most people would call ownership? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter. Puppy mills, everybody knows, are disgusting. Mm -hmm. But our shelters, this isn't even an animal rights issue, really. It's a welfare issue. Our shelters all over the country are at breaking point. Many of them just say, we can't take in another dog or cat. So if you have room in your heart, in your home, if you can afford veterinary care, because that's extremely expensive these days, and you have the patience and the time and the respect, go to the shelter and save a life. In fact, take two homes so they can keep each other company when you're at work. And that's fabulous. You're doing something good. But if you pay money to somebody who is profiting by breeding because you want a certain look, well, you know, looks are for your drapes. They're not for your dog. So, and you can usually find rescues of any breed you want anyway. But if you have... Love in your heart for a dog or a cat. Go get them from the shelter. Save lives. Okay. I mean, and here I am on your, I, I would uh, meet with your approval. Both of our dogs uh, meet your standard. But but just to, play, just to play devil's <laughs> advocate, um, and you're right about the, the vet bills, but um, just to play devil's advocate, um, like suppose all the shelters were empty. And also just to be clear in your position, um, and, and I'm told, by the way, that, that the pandemic has helped uh, make the shelters a little closer to empty. Right? I, I, I've heard that from somebody that, that uh, you know, people are when they're when they're homebound, they're more likely to go get a dog. But um, the uh, w- you know, what about the argument that, um, well, a dog, a, a, a dog that's taken good care of is a moral good. The dog gets to have a good life, right? So if you have the power to bring one into existence and give it a good life, in other words, to breed it and give it a good life, that's a good thing. Would you, you would not, I guess part of my question is, are you under all circumstances opposed to breeding, even assuming in my thought experiment that the shelters are empty? Because it is a fantasy. And in the beginning, though, I'll, I'll take you back. I think maybe we shouldn't have domesticated animals, and we did it for our own purpose, or so so we think. Um, there's a fire alarm going off now. That's interesting. Hmm. Or a in, your, in your building? Yeah, or a tornado alarm or something. Maybe a tornado alarm. It's okay. I'm well, still I here. Wouldn't, I wouldn't ask you to die for the sake of my podcast, <laughs> so don't. I'll keep an eye out. Don't worry. Um, but uh, to go back to your, your question. I, I think there's that idea that they're sort of like toys, is that we should produce them so they can amuse us. 
And as for this business of we give them a good life, a lot of people do give them a wonderful life and they love their people and their people love them. But I can't go out onto the street without seeing somebody hurrying their dog along who's trying to read the news on the bushes, which is mm-hmm. the way they get their, their information, and is impatient with them or saying a command, it's down, it's sit, it's be quiet, it's don't dig, it's don't go to the do- And you just think, mm-hmm. leave them alone. They're individuals like you. They're not your toys. So... Yeah, don't need to bring them into the world just so that you can not be cruel to them and give them a decent life. Get them from the shelter. We also express impatience with our children sometimes and tell them to sit down, right? But Yeah, but luckily we don't put a choke collar on them and yank them down the street when they're trying to say hello to a friend or lift their leg. Uh, I have have never resorted to that with my children, (laughs) you're right. But Bob, to go back a sec, if I may, Um, When you mentioned the shelters, it's a wonderful thing that kind people who are stuck at home can foster an animal, and I hope they keep them when they go back to work if that day ever dawns. Um, But also the shelters who cleared out because of that wonderful foster uh, thing, they now, a lot of them are closed or they're full again and they're Mm -hmm. not able to take any animals in. And they're in fact saying to people who find strays, leave them on the street. Our shelter has remained open because we are a shelter of last resort, which Hmm. means if you have a dying animal, you can bring that animal to us and we will hold them and you can be with them and we will put them to sleep forever. Hmm. Okay. I guess one final uh, thing I'd say on, uh, uh, by way of making a case for having pets is I would think that for some people who have a dog that helps uh, raise their consciousness about the whole question of eating any kind of animal, right? I mean, because yeah. because you look into a dog's eyes, uh, and it really can be a profound experience. I mean... Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but so I, I run into people all the time who one day looked at their dog or looked at their cat and thought, I wouldn't eat you. Why am I eating the other animals? So yeah, that it, it does definitely happen, but... There will always be refugees. There will always be animals in trouble who would be very appreciative of your taking them in and looking after mm-hmm. them and having that relationship with you. Yeah. No, there's still, uh, there, there are plenty of those. You, you're, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, I wanted to ask you a quick question about whales. <laughs> to get back to your book. <laughs> How much do we know about, you know, you hear about their amazingly intricate songs. How much do we know about that? Like what's we going do on know here? quite a bit because of oceanographers and mythologists who have studied cetaceans and have a vast body of information about whales and about dolphins. Those are the two special species that we know a lot about their communication, their sonar, their songs, their history, and so on, and how clever they are. Uh, in the book, I actually talk, I challenge people a little bit and say, but what do you know about fish? Because a lot of people are not using plastic straws, for example, because Mm -hmm. they don't want to hurt the oceans and the turtles and dolphins. But the best thing you can do to clean up the oceans and not hurt the dolphins and the turtles and the whales is not to eat fish. Because plastic fishing line, trawling nets, all this stuff is what these whales are getting entangled in discarded Crab trap sets, dolphins are dying in these trawler nets. So 
not eating fish would be good, but also I do point out how smart fish are, and a little fish called the wrasse, who is also known as the teeth-cleaning fish, because that's what she does. She goes into other big fish's mouths and cleans their teeth. She has passed the gold standard of animal intelligence, which is to recognize herself in a mirror, just like Kim Kardashian. Really? Yeah. Wow. I've never heard that comparison made between before. <laughs> the, the, um, I didn't, I hadn't heard the part about the mirror. The, the, um, I mean, these cleaner fish are amazing, uh, because, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not familiar with the exact species you're talking about, but there is a symbiotic relationship between some cleaner fish and the larger fish and the larger yes. fish could, could eat them, but they don't. The deal is you clean my, not that they're conscious of the deal necessarily, but the deal yeah. is you clean my, my teeth and, uh, I'll let you live another day. See, and they line up. The National Geographic has these fabulous videos you can watch of the big fish lining up and waiting their turn Mm. to have their teeth cleaned by the little wrasse fish. Um, But I wouldn't say they don't know what's going on. I think that we short sell animals. They're very clever. And squirrels, if they see you looking at them when they're trying to bury a nut, We'll use sleight of hand so that you think it's there, but actually it's not. It's over there. Um, They'll work and work at a puzzle. You know, a squirrel will, there's one beautiful, funny internet video of this squirrel. And the man is saying, he's been working at that jar lid for 15 minutes. I think he's about to give up. Mm -hmm. And you see the squirrel almost sigh. And then he goes back to the jar lid and he works and works on it again one more time, gets it off. And instead of just discarding it, he carries it in his mouth all the way up the fence line, dumps it in the neighbor's yard and comes back to eat. He thinks, I'm not seeing that again. So your view is that this reflects conscious calculation. When you see these complex strategic behaviors by animals, you're your kind of default assumption is that they reflect a conscious, a kind of awareness of the strategy almost. There's no question. And I mean, there have been so many studies now. I think everybody knows the one about crows who will find um, a stick in order to get a bit, to poke it, to get a bigger stick, to get a third stick that will actually be bent to go down into a hole, or they'll take a rock and they'll drop it into a container of water so that food rises to the top. No one taught them that. They sat and figured it out. And there are so many examples of how animals figure things out. You know, this hundredth monkey thing, uh, that saying, is because monkeys eventually figured out how to wash their sweet potatoes on an island to get rid of the sand. And they say roughly when a hundred monkeys knew how to do it because they'd learned by observation, suddenly everybody knew how to do it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I certainly don't doubt the strategic value of these things. I guess the question in my mind would remain open as to whether the animals are actually conscious. I mean, you, we can build machines that do pretty impressive things, but are, are, uh, we, it isn't totally clear to us that that means the machines are conscious, right? Is what I mean. No, but I mean, animals are, the word animal is from anima, meaning life. They have consciousness, there's no question. And there are some pretty hideous experiments that have been conducted where monkeys have had to press a lever in order to get food. 
But when they press the lever, they hear another monkey scream, a stranger monkey, or they see a stranger monkey across the corridor getting an electric shock. Mm. And some monkeys have gone without food for 11 or 12 days rather than press that lever. Now, to me, that means that they have a more moral compass that's in the right direction than the experimenter who designed that wretched experiment. Mm. Now, that leads to an interesting question. Does the way people morally evaluate species become a problem for you? Uh, I mean, we mentioned whales where everybody loves whales, <laughs> but they don't love sharks. They think sharks are mean. Uh, well, sharks are kind of mean. <laughs> they, they might want, they kill things. Uh, but, but, and so I, I would imagine a lot of people would say that even though uh, I think sharks of some kinds may be endangered species, a lot of people would say, Hey, they're just bad. It's fine to kill them and eat them. Or you go to terrestrial animals and they might say, you know, elephants look so nice and harmless. Tigers kill people. So it's fine uh, for poachers to, you know, to sell tiger teeth or whatever they want to do. Right. That, that, that's got to be kind of an issue, uh, something people ask about and a real obstacle from your point of view to getting people to attribute rights to animals universally. I don't think it's an obstacle if you think about it for a little bit, because, of course, um, the biggest predator is man. And we don't kill each other because we kill others, but yet we do. And in fact, human beings tend to eat the vegetarian, the most gentle, harmless animals, the chickens, the pigs, the cows, and so on, the ducks, the turkeys. So we are, uh, and we, we kill, as you know, for greed, not just for need. It's not that we have to have this, and that's all we take. And lions share their kill with hyenas and buzzards and all the other animals. And that's what they are designed to do. We're not, and yet we kill. We kill for fun. We are trophy hunters. I really think that's a psychopathology because it's pleasure killing. And I don't know that that many animals kill for fun, but the human animal certainly does. So I don't think that's an excuse for, oh, let's take them out. They don't No, they're designed to do what they do, and they only do what they need to do. Okay. So before we uh, get to the second half of your book, why don't we, why don't we trot out my diet at this point? Because I think it helps <laughs> kind of operationalize some of these questions. So and I have to say, just even in the half hour we've been talking, I've started to feel more and more guilty about it and, and, and more convinced that it, uh, it will in, in no measure meet with your approval. But anyway, uh, I, I don't eat red meat. I don't eat poultry. I mean, every once in a while Thanksgiving at my in-laws, I'll break down and have some turkey. But I basically don't. And uh, I do eat seafood, I guess. So I guess the term is pescatarian. And I... I work pretty hard to not eat farm-raised sea- seafood because my feeling about wild animals, like in theory, if if you could do, I mean, with any kind of wild animal, even I don't eat terrestrial animals, but if you imagine a wild boar living a good life as a wild boar, and then one day a hunter makes a completely clean kill, the boar doesn't even feel it and somebody eats it, I would consider that much less of a tragedy than the life of a pig as it goes through the factory farming uh, system and has all of this suffering inflicted on it. So my feeling had been that if I eat only uh, wild seafood, I shouldn't feel too guilty. So that that's one thing that 
you will certainly question. The other thing you'll question is that for the most, you know, uh, lunch as often as not, what I eat is just like three sardines. And I think, well, sardines, I mean, what is it like to be a sardine, right? I mean, it can't be a very rich, subjective experience. You're probably about to tell me I'm wrong, but, uh, but <laughs> That's that science thing again. What's that? That, the, that size, the thing, size thing, right. But then I think, well, you know, of course, brain size is proportional to body size. It could be that if you look at the things that give uh, richness to the human brain, it has to do with the complexity of their social lives. I mean, the social lives we have had evolutionarily, right? I mean, we're, we're, our brains are designed to recognize people and to treat different people in, in certain ways and, and so on and, and to think about our social lives and so on. So I guess it's possible that sardines, come to think of it, have a very rich social life. And the smallness of the brain is only a reflection of the smallness of the sardine. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, there's two different issues on the – there's several issues. I mean, one is, is it – you know, a lot of people – a certain number of people now are pescatarians – and they think of that alone as being some kind of moral advance relative to just eating anything that moves, right? There's that question. So why don't you, why don't you address that first? I think, are you, are you going to say they're completely 100% polluted? <laughs> I'm not going to say eat more fishes. <laughs> no, I don't expect that. <laughs> um, actually, you know, we got into trouble because when we said, let's think about this. Uh, if you wanted to eat completely ethically, and I take my hat off to anybody who is trying to walk the walk and, and get somewhere with this and has decided no chickens are off limits and no cows are off limits and so on, or dairy cows, worst of all. At dairy, I would rather someone stopped eating dairy than stopped eating meat if there was just a choice. Hmm. Because, of course, the dairy cow goes down the same slaughter ramp as any beef cow. And in the meantime, she's had her babies taken away and she adores them. And they adore her. Anyhow, um, we had this campaign called Eat the Whales. And of course, it was tongue in cheek. But it said, if you think about it, if you decided to eat a whale, you would eat what? A one thousandth mm-hmm. of a living being? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you eat a sardine, you can eat three living beings on just a piece of toast. Mm-hmm. So just in the sheer number of animals or lives you're taking, you might want to think of that equation as, as counting. But people find it so easy. And I know I used to fish, is go out there on the boat, the whole nine yards, is we find it easier to dismiss fish because, as you said earlier, they're not just like us. They're not primates. They're not that easy to relate to. They've got scales instead of just skin. You know, but if you look at them, they've got a heart, they've got eyes, they've got feelings, and their lips. I've had a squamous cancer cell removed from this list, this lip, and boy, did it hurt, and I got anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Their lips are so innovated that the pain when they're hooked, and the fact that when you bring them out commercially out of the ocean or the river, that their eyes bug out of their heads. And they, their internal organs decompress. I mean, this is real pain. So I say, you don't need it. You've actually got foods now. This is the second part of the book. You've got foods now like fake tuna, fake shrimp. If you want the taste, and I mean, we don't want to cause pain. We just do want the taste. 
the taste exists without mm. hurting. Now, what about on the uh, on the wild versus factory farmed? It, it, uh, of course, sometimes you know hunted animals uh, don't die painless right. deaths at all. Anything like it? I mean, uh, and I, uh, I, I, it's probably the case. I mean, I actually do buy sardines that say wild on the you know, but uh, that may mean suffocated slowly in a net. I don't know what exactly it means, but in principle. If we're talking about a relatively painless death, would you say it is preferable to eat wild uh, animals than the the ones that are subjected to the factory farming system? Well, I mean, I think what you're pointing to is things like Cecil, that lion, who they shot out of the back of a jeep and still couldn't shoot him properly. And Mm -hmm. overnight he suffered and then they went and found him again and tried again. Um, That goes on with hunting, with fishing, commercial fishing is brutally cruel. But you're right that it's relatively horrible for a shorter period of time than factory farming of fish, of pigs, of chickens, where they're miserable from the moment they're born. And the the, uh, factory farm fishing industry, this aqua farm business, is just a filth pit that's in the sea. Those fish you look at peter.org, you'll see the lice are on them because they're crammed together within those keep nets for so tightly, they're just like pigs on a factory farm, that you wouldn't really eat them if you saw how they are raised and kept. Mm-hmm. And of course, the filth from them and the diseases they have and the antibiotics they're giving them to try to keep them alive until they can get them to the supermarket are leaching into the ocean water and affecting the fish and the other marine life around them. It's, it, it's, it all stinks, basically. Mm-hmm. And you also wouldn't let me off the hook if I confine my diet to seemingly not very behaviorally or cognitively complex animals like scallops, mussels. I'm... I don't, because I just give them the benefit of the doubt. I just mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, that thing I told you about the snail... I mean, can you imagine something the size of my thumb? I mean, there are giant snails that are the size of a chihuahua. They're probably easier to relate to. But the size of my thumb, building a double door because a storm is coming. So I just think I don't need any of this stuff. Used to eat it, used to eat oysters on the half shell. Just I don't need it. So I just give them the benefit of the doubt. Vegan food, tasty, delicious, varied, you name it. Don't need the other stuff. Okay, so that does bring us to the second half of your book, um, because there are real innovations in getting uh, plant-based food to taste like meat. And there are more dramatic uh, possibilities on the horizon and and, in experimentation now, like actually growing what is actually meat, but it's in the test tube. you want to talk about some of some of that? I mean, I, I people probably heard about, you know, Beyond, uh, you know, the Impossible yeah. Burger, Beyond. Uh, and, and I have to say, if people haven't tried it, it may not be exactly like the real thing. But one thing that's very impressive about it is the texture. The feeling of yeah. it is remarkable in its meat likeness. I, I kind of, I feel that the aftertaste, you don't feel afterwards quite exactly like you've eaten meat, if that's some, but, but it's, a, it's a remarkable uh, proximity to it compared to what was available only a few years ago. You might not feel as tired. You might not have as much cholesterol clogging your arteries, but it's 
I'm told by every meat eater, and I haven't eaten meat in 40 years, so I'm not a good gauge, mm. is that it's very satisfying, and they're quite blown away by the Beyond Burger. This uh, month in California, KFC, and we've campaigned against KFC for years, um, has just introduced the Beyond Chicken. Oh, really? And what? Yeah. And what I had tasted it in England because it's already been introduced there. And in fact, it was so delicious. I went back and had it several times. But this Beyond Chicken, what we're asking people to do if they're already vegan is go buy it and buy a bag for the car behind you at the drive-in so that someone who might not ordinarily try it gets to experience it. And you might just save them and some chickens in Mm -hmm. the doing. Yeah, and um, various fast food chains are offering this stuff now. I think McDonald's isn't yet, but Burger King, I think, is. Um, yeah, Burger King, almost everybody is, even White Castle. I mean, it's yeah. everywhere. And you can buy it in the grocery store, even in the meat case. They have Beyond Burger now. But it is fascinating. There is a vegan caviar called Caviar. There's vegan pate. There's a vegan camembert called Camembert. And, you know, this is just basically if you want it, you can mm-hmm. find it. In Philadelphia, there was a vegan sea slug in a Chinese restaurant mm. that I saw. And I thought, I don't know who orders ordinary sea slugs. Yeah, I, that was, I was not, not waiting for that. that particular thing to be developed. No. But the, um, they do, and, you know, some of these are available in supermarkets. Beyond, uh, Beyond Burgers are available in supermarkets. I don't think Impossible is yet available anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are they not now? Impossible, but no, you're right. It's Beyond. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if you can find it, I don't know what's happening at the moment, but Gardein, I am a fish and chips fanatic from childhood, and Gardein has fish fillets that are really delicious. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, how do you spell that? G-A-R-D-I-N-E? It's got it. Yes, I E M G A R D I E N. I believe I E N. Okay. Um, and then, what about this prospect of lab grown? I mean, they've already done it. I don't know exactly what it tastes like. I gather there are some real challenges in terms of kind of integrating the fat content and stuff. But they have grown, and it's also not yet cost effective. But they have right. grown meat cells in uh, in in test tubes, do you have high hopes for this? Well, yeah, I don't see why we need it, frankly. But if somebody insists that they don't care that the other stuff tastes the same or just almost like it, and they don't care about the animals and they don't care about the environment, they don't care about anything, they want to have their real meat, then that's great. You've got companies like Memphis Meats and so on who are growing this stuff in a Petri dish, in a laboratory. So you're not going to have the bacteria, the E. coli, the Campylobacter, all that stuff that you get in real meat. But it is real meat grown in a lab. So it's real meat. You can have the blood and the flesh. If that's what you want, you're going to get it. It was about 20-some years ago, maybe 18, 19 years ago, that I actually spoke to the man who had this idea first. He was a professor in Holland called Professor von Elon. And he'd been in World War II, and he had seen awful treatment of prisoners of war, and he'd seen awful treatment of animals, and he decided he would never stop eating meat, but he hoped, like Winston Churchill, that if he put some time and money and effort into it, in his case, 
he could somehow grow meat without hurting an animal, which was mm. a wacko idea. But he got some money from the Dutch government. This kernel of an idea grew. And now, of course, you've got at least a dozen places who are growing lab-grown meat. Mm -hmm. Are there other things on the horizon? Um and any and I'm, we're you know eating isn't the only issue there there's uh you know there are people who say well there's nothing like leather on your feet uh. right or whatever there's all kinds of um there's all kinds of realms you know furniture uh where this comes into play um, yeah and companies are being very good these days they are stepping away from the use of leather it can take about 8 cows to make a leather car interior believe it or not Mm -hmm. And you've got almost every car company now uh, from, you know, the, the cheapest. I have a smart car, which costs about $14,000. I had to get a vegan steering wheel. For some reason, that had leather around the wheel, and I thought, I don't want that. But Ferrari has its new convertible as a vegan option. So it doesn't matter what class of car you're looking for. You can now get that. And you've got now... Um, mostly for environmental reasons. But you've got apple leather, pineapple leather, grape leather, all these leathers, leather from cactus. You've got all these leathers that don't involve suffering and are environmentally sound. And the, the, the retailers, the innovators are picking up on it. You may not even realize something you're looking at is made from a plant leather. You have to look at the label to figure it out these days. Hmm. And so th these are more leather-like in in feel and performance than than the yeah. old, you know, than than the vinyl stuff of yesterday, the naga hide of yesteryear. Yeah, and they breathe and they don't smell. I mean, to me, uh, because I care about cows, but I don't like to get into a car that has leather seats. And if I go into a shoe shop, I immediately know I, my nose wrinkles, and I think that's leather. Mm -hmm. I don't like it because I followed the cattle trail in India where most leather comes from, believe it or not. Even if the bag says made in Italy, that leather may have come from India. They export buffaloes, bulls, all these animals for leather. And the slaughterhouses are, are not nice places. You wouldn't have a picnic there. So is it pretty easy to find when you're shopping, find the alternatives to leather? I mean, oh, it, yeah. what do you? Yeah, and it's. It's not just the alternatives to leather itself. Yes, absolutely, because these companies now have taken the lead. But it's also these wonderful other materials that are coming into the market, some for the first time, these different uh, threads and hemp and jute and cotton and, that are being produced in ways that we never knew how to produce them before, uh, tensile that are stronger, lighter weight, and um, just really... You can make them into something practical or something that you can climb Everest in and be warmer than anybody ever was before or fashionable. Mm -hmm. Okay. What other things uh, are there that people can do uh, in, in their you know, consumption patterns broadly, the things they buy, the things they do that they may not realize they can do that wouldn't be that hard, that wouldn't be big lifestyle adjustments, but that might reduce uh, the amount of animal suffering? There's a lot. I mean, you we've campaigned so much, you don't see Ringling Brothers going down the street with the elephants anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we've got rid of um, most animal acts in the circuses. There's one starting up in Las Vegas with big cats now, and it's just out of touch. It's, it's not something you should do. So I say don't go to SeaWorld or any of these places where animals are confined because you know they don't want to be there. There's a life for them somewhere else. If you are in school, if you have a child in school, if you're a grandparent of a child or your teacher, there's now a synthetic frog called Sin Frog. You can cut the frog up with a scalpel, take out the little organs, and there's nothing formaldehyde There's nothing you can dangle in front of a little girl's nose and make them sick. Um, it's wonderful. And you can reuse this frog. So there are things like that. We've got cosmetics now. I think it's, I think it was two or three when we started that didn't test on animals. Today, 4,400 at least major brands look for the label. It says um, either a jumping bunny or it says not tested on animals, no animal ingredients. But there is one rule. And I think this helps when people say, well, are you against this or are you against that? I always say, if there's an animal involved, ask yourself, do you think that animal was a volunteer? Do you think that came to the shelf or the refrigerator case or voluntary, that it was given Mm -hmm. or was it stolen and was the animal's life taken for it? So if there's an animal involved in the equation, just get away from it. Okay, so I'm I'm curious, how did you first, I mean, you mentioned one threshold, which was when you uh, read Peter Singer's book and became something of a convert to the animal rights perspective, but you were already concerned about animal suffering at that point, right? More concerned than the average person? Well, no, I don't know. I mean, I do care about animals. I grew up with a dog, Mm -hmm. and that was like my brother in the house. He was there before I got there. And we knew how one or the other of us was feeling. He slept in my bed. I slept in his basket. We both threw up at the same time in the car if my mother was taking us mm. somewhere. So we, we related. And uh, I would never have allowed anybody to hurt a hair on his head. I loved him with all my heart. But my father was a gourmand. We ate our way through the animal kingdom. Absolutely everything you could imagine. The only thing I wouldn't eat was tongue because it looked like a tongue. Mm -hmm. But everything else was up for grabs. I had my first fur coat when I was 19, and I loved animals. So I think I was a slow learner. Uh, Until I read Singer's book, I hadn't really put it all together. But along the way, I stopped doing various things. And one was I stopped eating pigs because I found a pig abandoned on a farm. I stopped wearing fur because I was a cruelty officer and I saw how they suffered in those steel traps. Wait, when you say you were a cruelty officer, what is that? It's a law enforcement officer for a humane society. Okay. So if someone calls up and says, in this case, there's a fox in a trap behind the 7-Eleven, we go out and have a look. And yes, there was. Uh, We rescued that fox. Uh, She had to have her leg, one of her legs amputated. She was rehabilitated, but that woke me up. I thought, I care about animals, and yet I've got a coat made from animals who were caught this way. And so I was, it was a series of experiences, and that's why I formed Peter, because I thought if it took me this long as an animal person to open my eyes to all the various ways 
in which they're hurt, I bet there are a lot of other people just like me who haven't a clue about what's going on either. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you in closing about this thing I discovered while kind of Googling around, which is that you have a will, your last will and testament, <laughs> that is different from mine. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. The way it came about is I was in a small plane from Minnesota to Norfolk, Virginia, and we ran into a massive storm, worse than the one that's raging outside my window right now. And the two young pilots, and it's their decision, decided to carry on to Norfolk when all other planes, we didn't know this at the time, had diverted. There was a tornado tracking up from the Carolinas, and you looked out of the window and you thought, we're not going to land there, are we? We tried. We got caught in wind shear. It was as if you were in a washing machine. And they tried to divert and land at an Air Force base, and we got caught in wind shear for the second time. And it was the most horrific experience. When I landed, and we were all bonded on this plane when we landed, we all knew each other and told our stories of what we had thought. I thought the next day I could have died. I almost died. And I thought, that's the end of my activism when I die. And a little while later, I thought, hang on, you know what I could do? I could will my body to Peter so that when I no longer need it, they can cut it up into bits and use the bits for various things. And so I made a will. I have a pathologist. I have a lawyer. I have an executor. And when I no longer need this physical frame, If it's in shape enough to use, I'm going to put it to good use in various protests, like my liver for foie gras, where they force feed the ducks and the geese so their liver's enlarged so they can make pate and what have you. And my feet can become elephant, just like the elephants become uh, umbrella stands. We used to have those in my home in India. Um, You'll have my feet you can stick your umbrella in to remind us that... This is not what you need to do with animals. So do you I'm imagine... I'm a volunteer, they're not. I mean, do you imagine your actual feet, this is kind of a personal question I realize, but your actual feet being used... I mean, I mean, like PETA taking one of your feet, putting like an umbrella in it and going, see how crazy this is to take an animal's foot? Yeah, you exactly. Do. What is the difference? In fact, um, I want some of my flesh... Because I always say we're sisters under the skin, but we're also sisters in the skin. Is I want some of my flesh to be fried up with a lot of onions. So you smell those onions and you think, that smells good. And you come over and you think, oh, good Lord, it's her. <laughs> so mm. it just says, it's just flesh. Why eat it? If it, that revolts you, don't eat any of it. Can you imagine them like filming the, I may be getting a little too vivid and graphic here, but like <laughs> filming the cooking of the flesh and, sure. and saying, see how crazy this is? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think of what's done to animals. Their teeth are used in necklaces. You know, their body parts are used for all sorts of fool things, decorations, amusements. Um, I, I said, you could take some of my skin and make it into a wallet. And you could advertise it on the internet. And why would people want a wallet made of a lizard skin or a crocodile skin or a cow skin? 
and they wouldn't want a wallet made of my skin. My skin's perfectly fine, and I'm a volunteer. Mm -hmm. So when you start to think about it, it is totally crazy that we use the other animals for the same purpose and think nothing of it. Yeah, I do sometimes say to people when uh, when I am uh, kind of warning against being too judgmental about people who lived a long time ago and did things we consider morally reprehensible, I try to remind people there are almost certainly things we do that someday people will yep. find almost literally unbelievable. And they say, like what? And I say, like eating animals. I mean, that seems to me the most likely candidate. Like I can, Im- I can well imagine that in 100 years, uh, people look back and not believe it. Of course, in a way, it'll be easier for them because of some of the things we've talked about, these meat substitutes that are coming along and so on. But still, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, well, you, if know, you, are, you are on the right side of history uh, in a way that I'm not, so long as I'm eating sardines. No, uh, you, it's a very good point. And I do think it will happen. I mean, we look back and we're ashamed of what our species has done to others of our own kind throughout history. But Stephen Hawking said something that struck me as interesting. Stephen Hawking said, we shouldn't go out looking for intelligent life on other planets or in space. As he said, not not exactly these words, but God help us if they are the way we are, if they come here and they treat us the way we've treated other life forms. Mm-hmm. Let's hope they're more ethically evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of almost think if they aren't, then they they might not have survived long enough to get to where they are technologically. But that's another that's another story. Well, uh, so here's the book, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Ingrid Newkirk and Gene Stone. That's the way it looks. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Is there anything else you want to say about where people can find your stuff online or anything? Of course, it's, it's, uh, I guess the URL is PETA.org, right? P-E-T-A dot O-R-G for people for the ethical treatment of animals. Where, where else should people look on, on like Twitter or anywhere? We should, we, we have a Twitter, we have a Facebook and PETA.org, as you say. And basically, we're here to help. We want to be a resource. We want to, we're even willing to be a mentor if you need anything answered at any time. So there is a kind alternative to every cruel thing. So if you suspect something isn't just right, please, we have lists, everything you could imagine on the internet. We've got eye-opening videos. We've got fun things. I mean, we're there for anybody who wants to take one step, a hundred steps, wants to go all the way. Okay, great. Well, thanks for taking the time. And, Thank uh, you, Bob. Okay.